Hey, it's Andy. Thank you so much for listening. Today, we have an episode where I answer your questions and I bring on a friend to help with those answers. Ari Wasserman from The Athletic will join me. He didn't say a single mean thing about Michigan. So Michigan fans, you don't have to run away just at the sound of the name. We actually had an interesting conversation. We had a question about what does Alabama do if Nick Saban retires within the next five years? Who do they go get? We had a question about academic standards in recruiting. We also had a very lively discussion for our random ranking, Road Trip Foods. It's me and Ari and your questions right now. Welcome to the Andy Staple Show. Dear Andy Live on tape, but not really on tape because we don't use tape anymore. It's all digital. We will come up with a name for this segment eventually, but for now, the gist of it is you ask questions, I answer them, and sometimes I bring in a friend to help answer them. And today, that friend is Ari Wasserman of The Athletic. Uh, You know him, you love him, unless you're a Michigan fan, and then you hate him. Uh, He covers Ohio State and recruiting for us, and uh, Ari... I deliberately did not pick any Michigan questions today. There was one. There was there was one just straight up, what do you think of Jim Harbaugh question? And I was like, nope. I am not risking Ari chasing off of an, an, an entire fan base again. Yeah, well, I just want you to know that it's my goal to one day not be hated by them. It just happened to be this one point that got blown up over the course of six weeks. But I, I want to be known as fair. Um, I, I don't want people to hate me, but I think given the fact that that question might have put me in a bad spot. I appreciate you looking out for me. That's see that sort of thing. Now, here's the thing you got to realize as you as you start talking about more national topics, it's not that the people who hated you will then suddenly consider you to be fair to them. It's just that more fan bases will come to hate you. That's how it works. So, sorry about that. But the good news is you'll have quite a few more hating you after today because I think we're going to we're going to hit a few different spots with these questions. And I'm going to start with one from Scott. And this is one I get an awful lot. And I wanted to to throw it at you because uh, you cover recruiting very intensely and come at this from a a little bit different perspective. And I think it's an important perspective to get on this question. And so here's the question from Scott. If Nick Saban were to retire within the next five years, who do you think has a great shot of continuing the the success that he's got going on in Tuscaloosa? So, this could be in, at any point in the next five years. It could be next year. It could be five years from now. So Ari, who do you think is on that short list if Nick Saban says, I'm done, I'm hanging it up? Okay, well, I went and I looked up some numbers and I found a um, really trusty gambling odds section about who will replace Nick Saban. So can I just read the odds to you real quick first? Go for it, yeah. Bob Stoops is 15 to 1, and this is August 2019, so just remember that. Pete Carroll, 10 to 1. Jimbo Fisher, 8 to 1. Urban Meyer, 8 to 1. Will Muschamp, 6 to 1. Jeremy Pruitt, 6 to 1. Mark D'Antonio, 5 to 1. And I think that's before all that stuff happened there. Um, this so, is this is, These are odds for complete suckers. You know that, right? Yes. Complete oh, suckers. Oh, yeah, I know. Completely. Yeah, get people to come into your website, put down 20 bucks that even if you win, you'll never see again. I get it. But I just thought it was a good starting point to start the conversation. Um, Lincoln Riley, 5-1. Okay, so it's to not going to be any of those guys. 
Kirby Smart, 5-1, to one, Dabo, 3-1, to one, and I don't think it's going to be any of those guys either. And, like, I think I have a unique perspective on this because I saw what replacing a legend at a program that's competing at the same level was like. And I think, like, the, the answer to this question is, is everybody's going to want, like, a specific person. Like, who do you think is going to be the guy? And it's funny because nobody knew who Ryan Day was four years ago. And I think I've... I've had a lot of conversations with that Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith about this, and his number one goal when trying to find a new coach to replace somebody like Urban Meyer or to replace somebody like Nick Saban was to bring in a young, um, smart guy who can bring in his own system, is a really good X's and O's type guy, but also is going to respect what was already built there. If it's already humming and it's already working, there's no reason to bring in somebody that's going to change everything because what's working is what's working. Gene Smith didn't want anybody to repaint walls in the Woody Hayes Center. Like he, So the, Ryan Day is a really good example of this because he was just some um, assistant coach in the NFL who came in, learned the system for two years, then fit the profile of what a coach should be like, was really smart on offense, and now might turn out to be one of the longest-tenured head coaches in college football. He's set up for a great future. So to me, well, and, I don't know and if there's Lincoln, a- Lincoln Riley's a similar guy, too. I think that that's a similar situation where before Lincoln Riley was, was brought in from East Carolina to be the offensive coordinator at Oklahoma, not a whole lot of people outside the business knew who he was. And obviously, he was a great replacement for Bob Stoops, might wind up even, being even better than Bob Stoops. So I, li- I like where your head's at in terms of it may be somebody – we're not entirely aware of right now who may wind up on Alabama's staff in the next few years. You want to get somebody who understands the recruiting base, somebody who has learned intimately from the person who has been as successful as he was, and somebody who respects the work of the person they learn from enough to not want to change it. And I think that a lot of coaches in college football these days want to come in and and do their own thing or change the recruiting strategy or, you know, alter practices. and, And if it's already working, don't fix it. So, to me, I think that the idea would be to hire some young, bright guys, not really make them coaching coaches in waiting, but maybe people who would fit the profile, who would be ready to, to roll if and when that happens. And I know that that's kind of like a fairy tale scenario. And I don't know. I always joke with other people who cover Ohio State. Ohio State, somewhere along the lines, somebody must have made a deal with the devil because when Jim Trussell resigned, Urban Meyer fell out of the sky. And then when Urban Meyer retired, Ryan Day fell out of the sky on it. It's just like coaching changes are what usually make programs go up and down and have periods of of rebuilding. And Ohio State's avoided that. But you know, I think the number one thing that Gene Smith did that was smart was was picking a picking up somebody who absolutely could fill in the void of the legend that left, but also respect the work enough to continue to do things the way that that was done. Um, I also yeah, think that it. it- it's interesting because there's a difference here with Alabama and, and Ohio State and a difference between Alabama and Oklahoma. I think Ohio State and Oklahoma are pretty similar in, in those situations where there's a lot of infrastructure that you want to keep, people who've been around a long time that you want to keep. Alabama has cycled through a lot of people. There are not a lot of long times there, especially now that Scott Cochran has left as the strength coach. It, it's basically Jeff Allen, the trainer, is the only longtime guy still there. And the assistant coaches have cycled through, you know, there's not like a Larry Johnson that you absolutely have to keep that that sort of thing. So it, it's a little bit different there, but that doesn't mean you can't do exactly what you're talking about where, you know, you bring somebody in and and maybe it's somebody who's already there. I mean, you can say what you want about Steve Sarkeesian, but 
who knows if Steve Sarkeesian has been the offensive coordinator at Alabama for four or five years and is doing a really good job, he might be a legit contender for that job. If Pete Golding has a great year or two or three as a defensive coordinator there, he might have a shot at that job. I just, it, it, it's interesting because it, it feels a little different from Ohio state in that there's not as much that you necessarily feel like you have to keep because it's changed so much during the Saban era. Yeah, and I think the people need to realize, too, that Ryan Day wasn't on Urban Meyer's staff for seven years. Like, he was there for two the years Kelly and, then, and then took yeah. the job. He's not even from the same coaching tree, and I know Urban Meyer respects and loves Chip Kelly. They're close friends, but, like, it's just – it doesn't take much time to, like, look around and get the environment. And I know that Urban Meyer is one of the more demanding coaches to work for, and, you know, a lot of times they, I was sh- shocked by how much continuity he did have on his staff, but he also had a lot of turnover and just not as much as Nick Saban. So, you know, like that's the thing that's so funny because there's a lot of parallels. People always ask me, who do you think is going to take over at Ohio State if Ryan Day bolts the NFL in two years? And the question is, I have no idea. Like, what do you even, how do you even begin that? And it's just sometimes it's right place, right time. And if you get the wrong person, you can set the program back. And it's such a delicate thing. And it's just like a really hard question to answer. But I would definitely go with the idea that, you know, the, the trend right now in college football and even the NFL is is hiring that young hotshot guy with a great offensive mind who can recruit. And you, you can't hire anybody who's not a, a savage recruiter. And that's just step so, number one. Right. And, and that's the part I, I was interested in getting your take on because – you have to have a certain mindset and you got to be able to stomach recruiting in the SEC because it is hard. It is constant. It is nonstop. You have to love doing it. And if you don't, you'll get eaten alive. I mean, I think two or three years ago, people would have said, oh, you know, Chip Kelly, if he comes back to college football, that's the kind of place you'd want to put Chip Kelly because he was so dominant at Oregon. But now that you've seen... You know, he, he turns down Florida, goes to UCLA, and you see the way he's recruiting at UCLA. Like, oh God, no! You know, he he would not have enjoyed recruiting in the SEC at all. You know, it takes someone with a, a special kind of mindset. Ed Orgeron is perfect for that that mindset, which is why he's great at LSU. Kirby Smart has it. Jeremy Pruitt has it. Um, you know, I think Ryan Day has it. I know Lincoln Riley has it. it. It's it's a different mindset that that allows you to just grind on that. 24 7 because you can't you can't let up even for a second i know everybody's gonna say Dabo, and because he went to alabama uh, played at alabama but the fact of the matter is i don't think Dabo says yes i think if you're if you're greg byrne the ad at alabama and, and nick saban retires in the next you know two three years you have to go ask Dabo first but you go you probably go into that knowing he's going to tell you no and and then you kind of work from there the the one guy who was very successful this past year as a head coach, and you, you just kind of wondered what he'd be as a head coach, and now he looks like he's shaping into someone who I think would fit that profile, is Mario Cristobal. You know, coached with Nick Saban in Alabama, but also comes uh, from a different tree in terms of where, where he grew up. He, he was a, a great Miami Hurricane, and, and look, this, those, those Canes teams, you know, very different attitude than, than the Nick Saban-type teams. And so that, I think, would be an intriguing one because I don't know that Oregon's going to be able to keep him money-wise if he keeps winning the Pac-12. If, if Alabama were to come, they would be making you know, a godfather-type offer, and, and that's one that would be very hard for him to turn down. Another guy, Ari, that, that I've thought about for a while is, is Dan Quinn. If, 
he gets fired from the Falcons or just decides, you know, I've had it with this. I think Dan Quinn would be a marvelous college head coach. He was briefly a defensive coordinator at Florida under Will Muschamp and was great. If you look at the guys that he specifically recruited, like Keon O'Neal, guys like that, they all turn out pretty darn good. So he's got an eye for talent. Uh, just from, from knowing him a little bit personality-wise, he's one of those that would be a great recruiter. He just fits. He can communicate with everybody, seems to get along with everybody. Um, obviously would, would be less of an iron-fisted kind of ruler than Nick Saban, but I think he would be a great college head coach, and I think he could recruit in the SEC given the, the small sample size of him already doing that. I think that people, and it's a good distinction that you just made that people have to understand is recruiting and being a head coach in SEC territory is harder than recruiting in any other portion of the of the world, <laughs> of the of the landscape. Uh, yeah, I don't even absolutely. think. Now, now Dabo uh, and Mike Norvell probably have to live that because they're recruiting against SEC schools constantly, but that's pretty much it. I mean, Clemson and Florida State, you've you got to recruit that same way, but it's different everywhere else. It, like it Urban really Meyer is. will never coach in the South ever again. That'll never happen. Like I think that like if you asked him right now face to face, like the thing that drove him nuts in the end of his Florida tenure, nobody knows this more than you, but was having to continually deal with recruiting Florida. And when you say the South, if, if Florida is a major part of your footprint, like it's just a hard place to be. And if you even look at places like Ohio State, um, they used to really rely on Florida, and they're not in there nearly as much anymore because it's just a very difficult place to play. And I like what or, uh, recruit, excuse me, and I like what you said about um, Cristobal. And I wanted to read you one stat because I looked this up coincidentally last week, and I think it makes sense. Um, in the 2020 and the 2019 recruiting classes, so the last two recruiting classes, um, top 30 players, so 60 total, only f- six have gone to Pac-12 schools out of those 60 players. And four of them wound up at Oregon. So the only person recruiting on the entire West West Coast is Mario Cristobal. And I think before he becomes the natural um, replacement or somebody who would be in that conversation, I think he absolutely has to get Oregon to the playoff out of the Pac-12. He doesn't have any resistance right now. Um, Pac-12 talent, um, Oregon is leading the way by far. I know USC had some good classes a few years ago, and I think we're going to get to them here in a little bit in this podcast. But... Oregon absolutely has the tools to get to the playoff. I just don't know if they're going to do it. And I don't know if he'll be the right fit if he's not in the playoff. It's easier to promote somebody with no coaching experience who's never failed rather than getting somebody who has failed, which I think is part of the reason why I wouldn't be so high on the Sarkeesian thing because he's had a program before and it didn't end well. Um, And hiring within, I think, is a lot easier for people to stomach in terms of hope and, and trust in the future. It was very interesting watching Ohio State go through this People were not that familiar with Ryan Day, but everybody seemed to be on board with it. And replacing a guy like Urban Meyer, I found that to be quite surprising. Let's move on to our second question. It comes from Joe, and this is a really good one because it's something we sort of touch on tangentially a lot when we're talking about different programs, but we we don't really ever drill down, and we don't have specific information on this because schools don't give it up. But we, from talking to coaches, we get a, a general idea. So here's the question from Joe. Which Division I institutions have legitimate academic standards that impact their recruiting? Every school loves to claim that they have that, but who are actually burdened by their academic standards in recruiting? So, you know, we we talk about Notre Dame in this situation a lot. And I would argue that Notre Dame does have a little bit higher minimum standard that they have to deal with. They've got to 
a smaller pool of guys that they can pick from. But what makes Notre Dame more difficult in terms of academics isn't so much the initial eligibility standard that they have. It's the fact that they don't have a basket weaving major. Uh, they don't really cluster their athletes in, into one particular thing. It's sort of a classic liberal arts education there. And there's nowhere to hide an athlete who maybe wasn't as academically ready as another one. So it, that's a little bit different situation than, than say a really tough initial eligibility standard. And that really shrinks your pool. I think Stanford probably has that. Are you, uh, would you say Northwestern Duke? Who are the other schools like that, that, that are, are dealing with that kind of burden? I think you hit the biggest ones. Stanford, obviously, because of, uh, it's just one of the better schools in America, regardless of football. I think Michigan likes to say that. Um, Notre Dame, uh, Northwestern, those are the ones that Vanderbilt is another one that you didn't mention um, that I do think that just based on on getting in. But, you know, it's funny. I've had conversations with Nick Baumgartner, our Michigan writer and columnist, about this over the years. And I think people like to confuse that with which recruit is able to get into the school based on their transcript and their test scores in high school. Like, that's not what academic standard is. I think that schools can get kids in as long as they're not failing. It's a matter of whether or not they're equipped to stay on top right. of the harder workload once they're already in school. And, and there are certain schools that will check that. And if you're not the best player in the class, ad, their admissions department may nix you because they're worried you're not going to make it. Uh, there are public schools that do have to deal with this. You mentioned Michigan. Uh, Cal and UCLA. Are, are ones that I think have to deal with this more than people realize. And you know, obviously, if you know anything about what the best public schools in America are, Cal and UCLA are up there. And so it's obviously very tough to get into those schools. You know, so it's a, it's a little bit tougher than, than the other Pac-12 schools other than Stanford, obviously. And so that those are ones, I think, that have a little bit different view of it. I think Virginia has a little bit different one, but they've, they've been able to for the most part, get who they want in. But yeah, I think you're right about that. The other one I, I would say, Ari, that, that's an interesting one. I don't think it's an issue of getting guys in at all with Georgia Tech. I think it's a keeping them there thing because Georgia Tech's another one where the there's not a major that you want to just kind of shuttle all your athletes off to. They have a management major that's not as math heavy as, as the engineering ones, but there's still math in it. There's, it's still not easy to get through. Uh, so that's that's the part I think that, that people kind of lump those two things together when it's actually two separate things. How hard is it to get in? How hard is it to stay if you're not necessarily academically equipped? Yeah, I think North Carolina might also be another one, even though they ironically had an academic scandal. Um, and it, it, the thing that I wanted to comment on when I read this question, it was the first thing that kind of hit me is I think that people in general feel that when they think about recruiting that these kids are stupid or they come from backgrounds that wouldn't equip them to make it. It's like I go to the opening every year and that's the collection of the top 100 athletes in America um, getting recruited by the top colleges in America. And like, if you go there and talk to the kids, it's a different caliber of kid than I think it might've used to be even 15 years ago. I mean, study halls and getting through school and, and doing things is such a priority now because so many programs have this as a challenge. I just don't really remember off the top of my head a lot of bad apples that I've met like in just recruiting ranks and you know having covered Ohio State for the past 10 years I've 
dealt with a lot of the highest profile kids in America because they're getting recruited by Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, and all the other schools that are kind of mentioned on this list. And I just kind of just feel like, you know, not that it isn't a problem in some cases, but just the idea that kids are just more prepared for what's going to be coming down the road um, academically. And, you know, I don't know exactly how things work at Michigan or if Michigan, you know, puts more time in for tutoring than Ohio State does or, you know, is just a better school and a harder classes or whatever. You know, I went to University of Arizona and like it was just fine. It wasn't that hard. Um, and I don't know if it's because the classes I took just happened to be easy or if just Arizona isn't a good school or what. But for the most part, I just think that these guys are prepared um, so much more in high school football to be prepared for Division One athlete life than they might have used to be with all these prep schools and yeah. IMGs and all this stuff out there. I think that has a huge impact. I feel like I've noticed that too with the the top level recruits. Now there's still some you're like, okay, I, I don't know that he's all that interested in going to class. But for the most part, you see guys with with a definite academic plan. That it, it didn't you didn't used to get guys knowing exactly what they wanted to major in, you know, a year before they went to college, with with ideas about well, I could kind of shoot it off into this business or this business. You'd get that every once in a while, but now it feels like almost everybody's got a plan. And I think you're right. I think it's just that schools, high school coaches, even seven on seven guys, they've kind of figured out that this is, this matters. This is important. And having that plan going in increases your chances of success once you get there. So I I think you're right. I think it's the reputation of, of, Oh, you're a top recruit. You must not be very smart. I don't think that's necessarily true. And listen, there's never going to be a world that exists where the number one recruiting tool in America is how many NFL draft picks they've had. I mean, getting paid and being famous and going to the NFL is always going to be the number one motivator for a kid with dreams. But I've looked at, like, Ohio State's plans and seen other plans from Clemson and stuff. They have academic advisors put together, like, binders full of class schedules and um, academic standards and majors and different ways that they can, you know, help you with internships. Like, Ohio State started this program called Real Life Wednesdays where they have a CEO from a company come in and talk every Wednesday during the year about what it's like to work in, in the real world. And Ohio State was funneling um, these kids into real-life internships at Nike and J.P. Morgan Chase and all these things. And it's just like parents want to see this stuff now more than ever. And I do think that oh, academic yeah. standards is 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 like probably half of most of the recruiting pitches, especially considering the fact that, you know, if you don't have a plan for the kid, then you don't have a plan at all. And that's what parents want to see. Well- well, absolutely. I remember talking to Brandon Wimbush and his mom. This was when Brandon was still at Notre Dame and talking about why they picked Notre Dame. And uh, it was more about business connections, internships, getting that degree than, than it was about football. And I think you, if you asked anybody who, who was at Notre Dame when Brandon Wimbush was there, he got exactly what he wanted out of Notre Dame. He got you know great internships. I, I forget exactly which company he'd worked for, but it was a, he, he, got a, he had one really big internship. Uh, he got the degree, you know, that's exactly what a lot of these kids are looking for. And look, he got to be a starting quarterback for a while too. So that that's, that's about all you can hope for in those situations. And and then he went and went to grad school at UCF. So uh, it's, it's interesting how it's, you know, the NFL stuff matters, but if you can put guys in the NFL and show the, the recruits, you have a plan, if they don't make it the NFL, it's a huge advantage for you. So I just pulled up a story to, to that I wrote in 2015, oh, Andy, 
And um, yeah. this is a story from Urban Meyer. And I don't know if people know this about Urban Meyer, but his daughter was a very talented volleyball player who ended up playing volleyball at Georgia Tech. But Urban went through the recruiting process as a parent um, back in that in those days. And I wrote a story about what it was like to be on the other side of the table. And he said this. He said, I sat there and I listened to coaches and I said, oh my God, do I really sound this ignorant when I'm recruiting? They're talking about jersey numbers and locker rooms and training table and playing heart or playing time. And deep in my heart, I couldn't care less about any of that stuff. As a parent, I want to know what that school is going to do for my kid. And I think that like that is the new mindset now that recruiting is becoming more um, of a all-encompassing thing. It's not just look how big the stadium is and we have a waterfall in our locker room. It's about all the things that are going to be done for the kid, especially in the world as we inch towards the um, name, image, and likeness things. People want to know about brand. They want to know about course study. You know, all the stuff that we've already said, but I just think that the entire recruiting world has shifted dramatically in the last 10 years. Yeah, I remember asking Urban Meyer about that when Nikki was being recruited by Georgia Tech. I said, what's it, what's it like on the other side? He's He just kind of sighed. He's like, wow. He's like, <laughs> I'm learning a lot right now <laughs> that I can probably use later. And, and I'm sure he did. I, that's that's one thing. When, the, when those coaches go through the recruiting process as parents, I think it does open their eyes. All right, let, let's go to another question from, from Bennett. Now, Bennett says, USC is going into a do-or-die year with Clay Helton, and their schedule looks daunting. Alabama, Notre Dame, at Oregon for starters. I also don't see them good enough to being around the table against Washington, Utah, Arizona State, Stanford, etc. Additionally, they seem to be dealing with administrative turmoil. Is your outlook for the Trojans bleak, or are you more optimistic about the situation in Los Angeles? And so I want to kind of spin this question, Ari, into does the uncertainty of this year change anything for Clay Helton because we don't know exactly how football season is going to work. We don't know if it's going to start on time. We don't know if all the games get played. I, I'm on record saying I think they're going to play this season. I think they're going to figure out a way to play it during the school year, but that means it could be later. Does that change anything for Clay Helton, or is it still a do-or-die year no matter what? Well, I'm very curious because I've um, followed this USC thing, um, and I just like want to know – if the fundamental expectations of the program have shifted since the Pete Carroll days, like what is the baseline number of games USC has to win for people to be happy? And that's kind of what I'll, I'll tell you. And I, I do think that, you know, a condensed season or a shifted season that have different plans obviously makes it difficult for athletic directors to put into context where the results of a different type of season would fit into their actual expectations for a regular uninterrupted season. So I do think it does have an impact, but I, I think that Clay Helton uh, more so than the the games that were just listed there and um, how USC might be able to do on the field in the PAC 12 this year, uh, a conference that's down outside of Oregon. Um, it's just how he's acquiring talent. And I hate to say this. And, you know, I wrote a story a few months ago about the worst recruiting classes in 2020 and USC was on there. And some of it has to do with um, the fact that it's hard for any coach to recruit top-end talent when their future is uncertain. People like certainty. Uh, they want to know who they're going to play for. And USC's class was was pretty small and only had 13 commits. But you have to hit the load more tab on 24-7's website to get down to USC's class, which is rated 55th in the country. And it's just like if that's the case and I'm an athletic director, I'm I, that's enough for me to move on. Um, it's just like – if you can't bring in a top 20 class at USC, you're not, you're, that's all I need to know. Even if they end up winning nine games this year or 10, 
what's the out the outlook for the program long term if you're not bringing in the talent to do it especially considering the fact that it's the traditional powerhouse and one of the most densely populated areas for talent in the country so yes to answer your question i do think that the changes to the season could make things a little bit harder to fit into context but i just think that more so than not athletic directors could be looking at these recruiting classes and seeing the future of their programs long before the wins and losses even happen yeah and i think the the excuses on the recruiting end are probably have already run out for clay helton but it's a good year in california in 2021 they have six commits one five star four four stars that they are doing better in the state in 2021 but but i would argue that they also were doing better at this point last year you know that this this was one of those where they they lost some guys during the season and if the season's not going well this year, they're going to lose some guys during the season again. Yeah, and I, sometimes, too, I also wonder, and you might have a good take on this too, Andy, but being a head coach at a place like USC or Florida or any of the Blue Blood programs, you have to have a certain type of personality, like a, a, a almost a rock star-ish persona, and I don't know that he has it. I, I mean, having a, a five-star quarterback committed who's a top 27 player in the country and you know having some... Um, five commitments out of their six commitments in 2021 being from the state of California are all good things. But the thing that I also want to know is that in this huge debate that I've had with the entire Twitter world in the last uh, two weeks about how much talent matters in this game, USC was like the number one exception to the rule outside of Clemson in terms of one of the five most talented teams from recruiting rankings in college football, but a team that was losing games it shouldn't. So, like, I have questions right. with Clay Helton's personality. I have questions about his ability to acquire talent um, over the long term in terms of putting them back into the same sentence as oh, the Oklahomas, the Alabamas of the world. And I also don't know if he has the, the outward personality to attract attention to his program the way that even a guy like Pete Carroll did. Like, Pete Carroll was, like, the king of the sport and had, like, a you know a major personality that people could connect with. Like, what is Clay Helton's personality? I don't even know. He's a nice guy, and, and I don't know that that works. Right. You, you got you got to be a little more of an icon, I think, in that job. And and you know what I was pointing out about last year is Bryce Young was committed to USC at this point last year. Bryce Young is currently enrolled at Alabama, so that's that's the part that you have to watch. You know, does this class fall apart this year, or can they can they keep it going as the season goes? Because I think that changes maybe the decision you make depending on how the games go you know if the class is is still looking good hanging together and the results are okay i think that gives clay helton a chance if that class falls apart and the results are okay you're you're moving on i I think that's it it's he's not going to get a lot of options and i think they're going to have to be in the mix for the pac-12 title probably win the south and then you know we'll see what happens against oregon i'm assuming it's oregon but yeah, I'd, I'd say the North is probably still a little bit better than the South. So whoever comes out of the North is is probably going to be the favorite in that title game. So we'll I see. I think the simple answer but to that question, we, Andy, is what do you need to put in place at USC to make sure that the Bryce Youngs of the world, the five-star quarterbacks from Santa Ana, California, who are the top two players in the entire class are staying home? Because in 2006, I don't know because it hasn't been an issue for 20, for 20 years. So that's that's the thing. That that's not been like you don't lose modern day quarterbacks you want if you're USC. So I think that's you know maybe maybe we answered our own question there. Maybe it's yep. already 
it's already done and, and it should have been done. So let's let's go to a much more contentious argument. This is our random ranking. We do a random ranking every week. I've already revealed my answers in the Dear Andy column that ran last Thursday. These are the best road trip snacks. Uh, a guy named Nathan asked me to rank the best road trip snacks, and I got real nostalgic as I was doing this, Ari, because I, I miss road trips. Like, I'd rather drive than fly. I like getting to see different parts of the country. I love gas stations. I love good gas stations and gas station snacks. Yes. So I'm, I'm ready for, for the next road trip, and I don't know. Unless it's completely cross-country, I may drive it. The, when, when all this you know we all get to move, get moving again so this is a very important ranking so i'm going to start we're going to go up from from 10 and if you don't have 10 that's fine i can i can go through my bottom five real quick but i'm going to start at 10 number 10 one of and, and by the way these are only gas station snacks i'm not, we're not going to have a fast food argument here that's a completely different random ranking that i will also bring on ari for because i know he has strong opinions but number 10 one of those individually wrapped dill pickles by the cash register. Yeah, you can keep going on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number nine, the trail mix with the highest ratio of generic M&Ms to nuts and raisins. That's good. All right. Number eight, hot fries. And I'm talking about like the, the Andy Cap brand. Andy Cap was a... Uh, comic strip that if you read it now is extremely problematic but he had a brand of hot fries and this you know these are just hot potato sticks essentially you can find them in any gas station they're outstanding number seven roller grill hot dogs but only if you're starving that's a meal replacement that's not that's not a snack number six slim jims so now we'll get to our top five so ari what, what is your number five Okay, well, are we allowed to comment on anything that you just said, or do we, should we just move forward? Oh, absolutely. Rip it, rip it to shreds if you need. Because I, No, no, I'm not ripping anything to shreds, but I think that um, it's very interesting if you, if you talk about gas station hot dogs being in that category, because it's one thing to go get like a, a potato chip, and it's another thing to get hot food prepared in gas stations. And I'm somebody who loves driving. I psycho drive for every road trip that I can. Um, because I love the idea of seeing new gas stations and seeing new highways and all this stuff. But I just didn't know if like roller food um, counted because I love roller food and people think it's disgusting. So if roller See, food I feel, counts, I feel like there's only there's a there's a level of desperation when you're eating a roller grill hot dog. Like you are starving, you are dying, and and you're not there. There will be no suitable meals in your future the rest of that day because if you're going to a place that has even, you know, baseline quality restaurants, you're not going to eat a roller grill hot dog. This is, I'm on the road. This is going to be my last chance to have a significant meal today. So I'm going to eat this roller grill hot dog. Okay. That's, there's a level of desperation there for me. So you would actually okay. seek it out and choose it. Now, where, where do you fall on the like stuffed roller grill? Like, well, that's my, that, I, I'm not a roller food hot dog person, but number two on my list is um, the stuffed um, taquitos with pepperoni and cheese. So like the, they're almost like, ah. um, the, and I don't know if you've seen those, but I think that those are delicious. They're kind of like uh, pizza rolls, but just on the roller. That's that's interesting. I got to try those. So by the way, another, we should probably point out, we're not talking about like Wawa sandwiches or, or the stuff you can get from the sheets, no. you know, touch screen. These, those are 
that's like a restaurant. That's that's high class. We're we're going a little more down market here. So I got number five pizza combos. No other kind of combos. It's got to be the pizza ones, the pretzel crust. I would eat bags and bags and bags of pizza. It's one of those dangerous things where if I eat one, I'm eating the whole bag. Okay, so my number five is bugles. Oh, very nice. And I cannot, I like all flavors. And I can't tell you which flavor is the best. But I just thought that bugles should be represented completely in the top five here. Number four for me, and this is a relatively new development in the gas station world, but you're seeing a lot of it lately. Froyo by the ounce. Because dessert options at, at gas stations really are just sort of like frozen Snickers bar. That's about it. They Or whatever's in that case. You know, a drumstick, something like that. But the Froyo by the ounce really does jazz things up and you get to make some choices. And, you know, I, <laughs> that's, that's, that's big time at a gas station. My number four is ranch corn nuts. Very nice. You definitely have a type. You're going very salty. Now I'm getting there. Yeah. So yeah, mine's all very salty. Salty. Non sweets. I've always liked carbohydrates that come with a crunch. I'm like, I don't have any of my top five uh, candy wise or ice cream or anything like that. Well, so my last sweet one is here. Number three. Black Forest Gummy Bears. It is the, the finest brand of gummy bear. You can keep your Audibos. Uh, and not not the organic Black Forest Gummy Bears. I want the most artificial ingredients humanly possible because the organic ones taste wrong. They feel wrong. They taste wrong. I want the regular ones. And that's it, the sweet isn't always going to be my first choice, but there are times when I'm on the road and either it's late and I'm sleepy or something and I need that jolt and I want something sweet. So... Black Forest Gummy Bears, if they got them, I'm buying them. My number three is fresh popped popcorn. Um, and there are times... Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, and, and uh, you can't get it at a lot of places. Like, I feel like a gas station is the only place you can get it. And there's different types of popcorn. There's popcorn that you pop in your own microwave. There's movie theater popcorn. But you know that, like, salty popcorn that you'd find, like, a car dealership? That like pops yeah, in, out and in the, all has in the cage and you, you scoop in the it cage, in the bag. right? Yeah, and yeah. So and I love popcorn. Popcorn's my favorite snack more than anything. And if they don't have fresh popcorn, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I'm going to do a slash. No fresh popcorn, but keeping in the popcorn family, the black smart food bag of white cheddar popcorn. Oh is yeah, absolutely that, that's delicious. So I'm I'm moving into the salty area for me, and and when I want salty. I want the saltiest of salty salt and vinegar chips. And so this was probably going to be ranked lower, but the day I wrote the column, I opened a bag of salt and vinegar chips to have like two and three quarters of the, of the bag was gone and I was still writing. And so it wound up number two. Okay. I have no arguments with that. I think salt, um, I think those chips are unbelievable and salt and vinegar is one of my top three flavors. And you know my number two, which is the pizza roller food. All right. Number one for me, sweet and hot beef jerky. And so I want a little bit of sweet, but very spicy. Uh, I prefer if you have the, the real beef jerky, if you're like at a Bucky's in Texas or a Busy Bee in Florida where they have the bags of real beef jerky and it's not just, oh boy, Alberto or uh, Sasquatch, Jack Lynx. Uh, I prefer the real stuff. Uh, Tillamook of the mass market brands 
is the best one, but you can't always find that everywhere. But that's that's the ideal for me is sweet and hot beef jerky. I'm very curious what you're going to say to mine because uh, it's not a specific thing, but it's an idea. My number one is regional potato chips. So if I'm in oh, a place yeah. that has potato chips that I can't get where I live, I always like to try the potato chips of the area. So if you're up in the north east in the Pennsylvania area, you know, the, the, the Utz chips and whatever, wherever I go, I always go down the chip aisle to see if they have a certain type of potato chip that I've never seen before or is, is made in that area because I'm a huge potato chip fanatic. And a lot of times I'll buy multiple bags of, of flavors. So if they've got barbecue and salt and vinegar or whatever they have, and I'll do, sometimes I'll get a bag of kettle and sometimes I'll try the baked. Like it's a, it's just a, it's a whole bag full of it, but I'm very big on trying the things that are, are cool about the area. And the one thing you can do in a gas station with snacks is, is potato chips are always different. So have you had zaps? Yes. They're delicious. Okay. Craw taters or voodoo? What's your favorite? Voodoo. All right. I, I tend to go voodoo too. Voodoo is really spicy, kind of like super spicy barbecue basically. Uh, but craw taters are a totally different deal. It, rarely do you get a crustacean flavor in your potato chip. And the craw taters have it and you will, you will want a very large beverage when you're done eating those. And I'm such a sucker because even every time like Lay's – puts out those like you know every year they have like five random flavors of like fish and chips or some random flavor quesadilla flavor potato chips i always try interesting flavor potato chips and more often than not i really like them like i really like ketchup flavored potato chips yeah this is uh this is good we may need to do just a straight up potato chip ranking the next time we have you on i think yes i think that may be your most controversial set of takes i think that you might even be able to bring the michigan fans back in the fold if if you do it right, so we'll we'll give. Well, it let a me shot ask right. you one more, Andy. Just just as a curveball here, because sometimes people view um, snacks as drinks too. Did you have any listed in your top ten of drinks? And what is your go to road trip drink? If you could pick one, you know, I mean, there's so many different types of like Coke, like a Mexican Coke or a Draft Coke. I call it Draft. Um, iced teas and all this stuff. I have one go-to road trip drink that I always want every time I get into a gas station. And I didn't know if you had one. So I am an iced tea guy. If you have fresh brewed iced tea, like Quick Trip. So Quick Quick Trips you can find in the Atlanta area, in the Dallas area, in the Kansas City area. Those are their kind of main hubs. They have great selections of fresh brewed iced teas. And so I'm going to grab a large one of those. I'm going to put like 19 Splendas in it and I'm going to roll. That's, that's what I want. If not, I'm going to try, I'm going to go and hope you have the soda fountain where I can inject a flavor and I can make vanilla Coke zero. That would be my second one. Okay. Yeah. Cause first of all, I loved what you said. Whenever I'm on a road trip, I never stop at a gas station that looks like small or, or, uh, very small to go into or like clustered up. You know, I like the big, well-lit um, gas stations that are like Cumberland Farms in the Northeast. Like, you know, the the nice ones, the quick trips that they have. In, yeah, a in place down. where you won't get stabbed. Just a lot of place that has a lot of stuff. But my go-to road trip drink is um, Arizona iced tea raspberry flavor. You know those tall cans that are 99 cents? Oh, yeah. Oh, I've, I've that, had that, plenty of Arizona tall boys in my in my day. <laughs> And they, they are actually, for some reason, and I don't know what the case is, but 
they're more and more hard to find. I've noticed, um, especially when you were talking about the certain flavors, like the lemon ones are usually in there, but most gas stations now they don't even have Arizona iced tea anymore. And I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. Cause it's starting to worry me. Well, I always wondered if they're kind of mobbed up because they had a very Italian name on the company that, that brought them into the world. And so I, maybe, maybe something happened. I don't know. I I'm, probably shouldn't be assuming based on the number of vowels in the name, but it was like so, like Voltaggio and Sons, so I, I don't know. Just maybe, maybe there's something. Maybe Arnold Palmer just cut off their market share because th- now does Arnold Palmer still? Because he was affiliated with Arizona Iced Tea, and the the half lemonade, half Iced Tea, the Arnold Palmer was marketed through them. Did he break off on his own? Because I still see his face on cans in the gas station, but I don't yes. know if it's an Arizona Iced Tea anymore. His face is still on Arizona iced tea, Arnold Palmer's. And the thing that you can find in most of them are the like sugar-free diet ones that like the can looks like a golf ball and it still says Arnold Palmer on it. And it's like zero calories and it kind of tastes passable if you're on a diet. Um, but you know, there's no better way to infuse uh, 75 grams of sugar into your body than chucking a tall boy after having some salt and vinegar chips. That's an experience I've, I've had quite a bit of my life. You know, we were going to spend a lot of this podcast talking about how you and I have managed to lose weight on this quarantine, but I think we're just going to leave it at that. We're going to leave it with the super salty bag of chips followed by the massive infusion of sugar because you and I aren't going to do that for a while and we're going to be much healthier for it, right? Yeah, that's the plan right now. No road trips anyway. Can't go outside and, you know, got some some clean eating I'm trying to do and everybody's gaining weight in the quarantine, but I gain weight in the real world. I don't gain weight at home. All right, Ari Washman, thank you so much for joining us. Keep keep those pounds off, and uh, next road trip, the uh, potato chips are on me. Sounds good. That's the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you're not already subscribed to The Athletic so you can read what Ari and I are writing, hey, what are you waiting for? 40% off your first year at theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. That's 40% off your first year at theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. I'm in the middle of a series where... Our NFL writers give me the needs of the team they cover, and I tell them exactly who they need to draft round by round based on watching these guys play in college. Uh, Ari's writing a bunch of stuff about recruiting and how that's changing during the COVID-19 shutdown. A lot of good stuff on The Athletic. doesn't really matter what you love in sports because we cover it all. International soccer, NFL, NBA, MLB. Dane Brugler has this massive draft guide that you can download if you're a member of The Athletic. So get on board. Theathletic.com slash Andy Staples. I'll talk to you on Wednesday.